0: As we uh, look to God's word this morning, I invite you to open God's word to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 20. As you turn there, I want to remind you or uh, share with you some realities that perhaps you are very much aware of, or perhaps um, these realities are, are happening, but you are not realizing what is going on around our country and nature and and society. In many small towns in the South, it was quite common for influential people in a town to attend church and to be associated with Christianity, especially in small towns in the South. Uh, In such places, one's public association with Christ was acceptable in the public eye, uh, even used and seen as a sign of credibility of one's uh, morality and, uh, and credibility, but today we are living in an increasingly post-Christian culture, which means that Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview of our society. Christ is no longer accepted as a uh, reputable, credible figure in our society. Associating ourselves with Christ is increasingly no longer the acceptable thing to do and no longer as a sign of credibility or security. But quite the opposite, it increasingly raises eyebrows and suspicion from our society. And this dilemma, what should Christians do in in a society that is moving in this post-Christian status, uh, creates a dilemma for us as Christians. What should Christians do? But this dilemma is not new. From the time of Jesus, uh, His followers have been embraced by uh, the leaders of society with mixed feelings. And even before Jesus was on the earth, um, we see the same dilemma in the Old Testament in lives of those who foreshadowed the life of Jesus. And one of those characters in the Old Testament who foreshadowed the life of Jesus, is David. This is what we see in our text today as we look at the events that unfolded between David and Jonathan. Will Jonathan continue to show commitment to David even when Saul's chase against David intensifies? Where and how will Jonathan seek security When he can no longer hold together the worlds of Saul and the world of David. Let's consider God's word this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll be reading the entire chapter. It's a bit longer, uh, but at Park Hills we're not afraid to to read God's word in longer segments. Uh, So we believe that God can speak through the, the mere reading and hearing of the word of God. So let's hear God's word together. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Nayoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at the table with a king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at the evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord The God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is a new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, The arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food. The second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him in the morning. Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David. And with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, it's not the arrow beyond you. And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Father, you have given us Christ as a sacrifice for our guilt. You have also given us your word to instruct us, to teach us. And we pray in this hour that you would speak to our hearts, that you would use the proclamation of your word to bring life, to bring, to bring strength, to bring encouragement to your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Will Jonathan continue to show commitment to David when David's chase intensifies? We've read the text and you have figured it out by now. The answer will be a firm yes. And you might say, well, Does that mean that the sermon is done? No. Because it's not simply about Jonathan helping David to flee in safety. Jonathan does in this passage more than simply help David. What Jonathan does here is beyond the call of duty. Uh, Of any good friendship, of any loyal friendship. This chapter is not simply about how to be a good friend or how to show loyalty to your friends uh, when they go through a hard time. Something else is going on in this chapter. Something else becomes the emphasis of this chapter. And the emphasis will become the primary challenge for us in this text. What's the emphasis? Even though the majority of this chapter tells the story of how David is seeking security from the threat of Saul, the emphasis falls on Jonathan, who ends up seeking security in the one who is despised and afflicted. We might see that in this chapter, each of the characters, there are three characters, each of the characters that, that make an appearance on the stage are seeking some level of security. David is the most easy to see. After all, Saul is is chasing after David. But Saul also is seeking a degree of security. He is trying to secure his kingdom. He's trying to secure his dynasty. He's trying to secure a, a, an open path for his descendants to continue to stay on the throne. So Saul, in some way, is also seeking security. And his threat of David is because he's seeking security. But Jonathan is placed between these two characters. What would Jonathan choose? Where will Jonathan seek his security from? To understand this chapter well, it's helpful to notice the scenes of this event. There are four scenes that build up towards the main challenge, the main emphasis, the main message of this chapter. And these four scenes can be summarized in four words. Four words that that keep together the development and the movement of this message. Peril. Protection, pressure, and peace. Peril, protection, pressure, and peace. The first scene is in verses 1 through 11. David reveals his peril to Jonathan. After David escaped from Nayoth in Ramah, from the presence of Saul, David came to Jonathan to ask him for help. And the first request David makes to Jonathan is to inquire, "Help me know what sin have I committed against your father that he seeks to, to kill me?" This is what David asks in verse one, "What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life?" Later in this chapter, we will find out, in very explicit terms, from Saul's own mouth, what is the cause? that leads Saul to to seek David to kill him. The events of this chapter will expose Saul's heart and motivation for his relentless pursuit of seeking to kill David. Now at first, Jonathan is convinced that his father is not seeking to kill David. After all, the last word that Jonathan heard from his father about David was in chapter 19 at the beginning. And in that place, Saul committed, even vowed, that he will not kill David, that David will not be put to death. So we might understand why, in Jonathan's mind, the notion of the threat of killing David was put to rest. At the beginning of this chapter, these two friends have different perspectives on Saul and his motivations. Once Jonathan, however, is persuaded by David's rationale, Jonathan is, is willing to help David figure out and determine what is going on. David asked Jonathan to confirm indeed what Saul's intentions are, whether David needed to hear that confirmation or whether that confirmation was needed for Jonathan to understand. It's possible that both are at stake. David asked Jonathan, to create a cover-up story as a test for Saul. The cover-up story involved a a story in which Jonathan showed favor or would show favor to David and let him attend a family dinner in Bethlehem. And the trigger in this cover-up is that David asked Jonathan for a favor. Would Saul be okay with Jonathan showing David this very minor an insignificant favor of letting him be absent from the family royal dinner in order to go and and spend dinner, have dinner with his biological family. Now, you may wonder, isn't this cover-up situation uh, a lie? How can David ask Jonathan uh, to lie? Well, it's, it's not an easy question. Uh, Given how strongly Saul was seeking to kill David, the principle of seeking to protect an innocent life is probably the reason why David comes up with this cover-up strategy. This situation is similar to the time in uh, in the Old Testament when Rahab uh, created a cover-up to protect the Israelite spies when the soldiers of Jericho asked her uh, where the spies were. The principle of protecting and saving innocent lives seems to allow for creating this cover-up strategy. This plan would not merely protect David's life because he dared not show up anywhere close to Saul any longer, but this plan would also expose and confirm Saul's heart and motivation. If Saul reacts pleasantly, David is going to be safe. But if Saul reacts in anger, It will be a clear sign that David must flee permanently from Saul's presence and from his service. Later in the text, Jonathan confirms that this sign that David has created will be the means by which David and Jonathan both will know for sure that it is the Lord who is sending David away. Notice in verse 22, Jonathan says, But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. Jonathan helps David not only to escape, but also to understand that through this peril, it is the Lord who is sending David away. Oh, if we had the, the same eyes of faith that Jonathan had to see what God plans to do, even when we encounter dangers and peril we are far too quickly intimidated and fearful of difficulties. It's so easy for us to assume that just because something is difficult, it must not be God's way. Yet here Jonathan confirms to David that should Saul respond in anger, it is the Lord who is sending David away through the means of this peril. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in the book of Romans, when he begins this, this section on application after a great section of theological truths, in chapter 12, in verse 12, he gives this command, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. When we encounter difficulties or various forms of tribulation, what is the first way that we often pray in those times? Lord take this away. Lord, intervene. Lord, solve the problem. Now, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that prayer. The Lord loves to hear His children take refuge and find their refuge in the Lord in times of trouble. The Bible is full of such requests, of such pleas for help, but friends, there are times when the Lord is using peril in our lives for purposes that we do not yet understand. And the Lord's desire for us in such tribulations and, and perils is not merely to ask the Lord to take us out of it, but also that we would learn to be patient through it. And it's a big difference. By the end of this chapter, David will learn that this peril is the means by which the Lord is sending David away from from Saul's service. And he takes a Jonathan to help David understand that the Lord is the one who's sending him away. That's scene number one, peril. Scene number two, protection. We see the scene from verses 12 to verse 23. Uh, In in this scene, in the second scene, the, the, the scene is full of language of protection. Much time in this section is spent on the assurance Jonathan gives David that he will not hide anything from David and will seek to protect David's life. Jonathan even vows to send David away in safety if Saul proves that he is seeking to determine to harm David. Look at verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. Then in verses 18 through 23, uh, Jonathan tells David how he will inform David secretly so that no one will know of this arrangement so that David could indeed leave in secrecy and in safety. What is clear from the setting is that David needs Jonathan's protection. David is at Jonathan's mercy uh, to help him flee from Saul and to run away safely. All this makes sense. All this does not surprise us. We would expect it to happen as such. But the surprising element here in the second scene is what Jonathan asks of David. Look at verses 14 and 15. Remember, here it is David whose life is in danger. Yet notice what Jonathan asks David. Verse 14, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Does this surprise you? Pause and consider what Jonathan is convinced about in this moment. He's convinced that a time will come for David when the Lord will cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Everyone. A time will come when, on the face of the whole earth, there will be no enemy against David. What a bold claim! for Jonathan to make at this moment. And Jonathan says, when that time comes, David, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you see the surprise and the irony in this request and claim? Here's David who is persecuted, helpless and on the run. And yet at the exact same moment, it is Jonathan who is asking David for protection from David for his life and for his descendants. Jonathan is seeking protection and under the wings of the one who is currently a fugitive. How odd, how surprising. Jonathan's request from David was sealed with a new covenant. Look at verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Here we see that Jonathan is not only seeking protection from David, but Jonathan makes a a permanent covenant with David and with Jonathan's descendants and with David's descendants. It's a way for Jonathan to say, I want my future to to be tied to what happens with David's house. My future and the stability of my descendants is not with what my father can give me. It is not with what I can inherit from my father. Instead, my stability and the future of my descendants will lie with David. And Jonathan does not just make a covenant with David and with his house out of desperation, out of just seeking to save his own skin in the future. He utters a blessing on David. Did you notice the blessing in verse 16? May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. It's a way for Jonathan to say that Jonathan agrees that God's vengeance on David's enemies is right, even if his family will prove to be among David's enemies. There's no question here how strongly Jonathan's faith is that God has raised up David to be the next king. And Jonathan sides with David and with the Lord against all of David's enemies, Prince Jonathan's governor with David and seeking his security in the house of David teaches us a great lesson that the way things are in the present are different than what the Lord plans to do in the future. Don't trust what you see and experience in the moment. Sometimes you may have heard the phrase, what you see is what you get. It's an English idiom saying. What you see is what you get. Uh, It's used by salesmen often uh, to make sure that when they sell to you a product, they say, hey, you'll get exactly what I'm promising you here. And there's opportunities and places where that saying can be used in a positive way. What you see is what you get. It means about a person, he's not hypocritical. He doesn't have uh, more faces. What you see is what you get. But there's a sense in which this idiom is detrimental if we use it for our faith, for our life with the Lord. Sometimes what you see is trouble. Sometimes what you see is peril. Sometimes what you see is hopelessness. It takes faith to believe that what you see is not what you will get. The Lord will do far more abundantly that what we can see right now. And and Jonathan sees in David a fugitive, but knows that what David will get from the Lord is David's ultimate and supreme protection from the Lord. Oh, friends, look to what the Lord has decreed. That is a far better foundation for us than what we see and experience at the present moment. Jonathan helped David remember the plans the Lord has decreed for David. And Jonathan wants to be a part of that. Thus, it should not surprise us that it is Jonathan who needs to ask David for protection here in this second scene. And there's an extra detail here. Jonathan asks not merely for David to show him his steadfast love. Jonathan does ask David, show me your steadfast love. But Jonathan also asks David beyond that. He also asked David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. When we love others, we're called, my dear friends, not simply to show them how much we love them. That love can oscillate. Our love has limits. But God's love is steadfast. And what we need to ask the Lord is to help us show others not merely our love, but His love. You may feel like your love tank is empty for others. Perhaps there's someone in your life to towards whom you feel like you have no more love to give. First of all, that notion of a love tank, uh, is, is a flawed picture. It's a very limited picture. Nevertheless, it is a real picture of our corrupted human, limited human, uh, natures, but it was not supposed to be about your love for others in the first place. It's supposed to be about the steadfast love of the Lord. And instead of trying to just show our love towards others, ask the Lord to help you show his steadfast love to others. Is there someone in your life who is hard to love right now? Someone towards whom you may feel like your love is running on low. Consider showing them not simply your love, which is transient and low, but show them the steadfast love of the Lord. Jonathan asks David, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. After making this covenant with the house of David, Jonathan explains to David how he will plan to find out about his father's intentions and how he will inform David of the outcome. And we see these details laid out by Jonathan in verses 18 to 23. But notice how Jonathan concludes the second scene verse 23 as for the matter of which you and i have spoken behold the lord is between you and me forever it's as if jonathan is saying david i'm helping you now but remember that i'm putting all my security and safety under god's plans with you and this reminder is not the only reminder in this chapter It's repetition here in this chapter points out that this is the emphasis of the entire chapter. Right here, Jonathan is the one who is seeking security in David and in his descendants. And this leads us to scene number three. We've seen peril. We've looked at protection. Scene number three, pressure. Pressure. This is found in verses 24 to 34. Scene number three. This chapter started with David asking Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before my father? That he seeks my life. It's finally here in this third scene that we find the answer. The cover-up plan that David and Jonathan, Jonathan devised, unfolded just like they planned. On the second day, when David was absent uh, from eating with King Saul at his table, Saul asked Jonathan about David, why he's not there. And Jonathan answered exactly as David instructed him. We see this in verses, um, right before verse 28 and 29. And then after that, we see Saul's response and how he reacted. Verse 30 and 31. Look at these verses. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul's response here reveals Saul's true motivation. Saul knows that if David remains alive, his kingdom and his dynasty will not survive and that Jonathan's own life and his kingdom will also not survive. Saul's motivation for seeking to kill David is exceedingly clear in this moment. Either David is cut off or my reign and my family's future is cut off. Saul also thinks that he can persuade Jonathan By promising him greater stability and a future kingdom of his own. Saul figured out that Jonathan has chosen the son of Jesse as his friend. So so Saul shamed Jonathan for striking a friendship with David. With the one who had threatened Saul's dynasty. Saul appeals to Jonathan's craving for power and security by offering him his own kingdom on the basis of these offers. Saul commands Jonathan to go bring David to Saul. So Saul could kill him. Saul does not yet know that Jonathan has already chosen to find security and a future protection for him and for his descendants under the house of David. What we see here in Jonathan is someone Who did not fall for the lure of power and security through what he could inherit from his father. Saul's promises for the future kingdom of Jonathan had no tug in Jonathan's heart. So Jonathan simply responds by asking Saul, what sin David committed to deserve death? It's as if Jonathan Jonathan says to his father, Dad, I understand that David is a threat to you and your kingdom and to our dynasty. But that is no sin on my books. That is no wrong. Is there something else that Jonathan has done that, that, that David has done. You see here, Jonathan's heart hears Saul's motivation. It's like, I get it. That's what motivates you to protect yourself, to try to offer me your kingdom. But That is no... David living It's no wrong to me. Oh, well, friends, Saul's craving for power, the craving to protect his own reign and the cause and the throne... Cause Saul not only to seek to kill David, but to harm even his own son, Jonathan. When Saul realizes that Jonathan has no appeal to desire to side with his father in the promise of a kingdom and of his own dynasty, it's as if Saul is sa- saying rather than having a son like that who sides. With my enemy against my kingdom, I would rather have him dead. Now, in one sense, what Saul said to Jonathan was true. The son of Jesse would replace Saul's dynasty. Both thrones cannot coexist. This is why, dear friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ has a very sharp edge to it that we often miss today. The gospel of Jesus the descendant of David, the root of Jesse, the gospel of Jesus has a sharp edge that cuts at the very core of our hearts to protect our self-rule. In the gospel, Jesus not only seeks to rescue helpless sinners who are in bondage to sin, in the gospel, The Jesus of the Bible seeks to claim the throne of those who want to keep it for themselves. The Jesus of the Bible calls us to find our greatest security in Him instead of finding that security in ourselves or in what this world could offer us. The words of Saul to Jonathan were true. You can't have both. Your reign your throne, and the son of Jesse living on the earth. What Saul did not know is that Jonathan has already made his choice. What about you, my friend? What about us? What are the ways in which the lures of this world and the lures of building our futures and our security on our own are tugging at our hearts are in opposition to the reign of the son of Jesse. Are there areas in our lives, are there areas in your life where you feel that tug of war between the interests of the kingdom of God that he is bringing on the earth and the promises and the lures to bring your own kingdom, to protect your own self-rule? Jonathan has chosen. And we see it not merely in the words that he has spoken before the pressure mounted against him, but we also see through the actions he took afterwards in the last scene, which lead us to the fourth scene. Peace. From verses 35 to 42, we see what Jonathan does. Is he going to obey what his father commands him? To go bring David to Saul so Saul might kill David? No, Jonathan does the very opposite of what his father asked him to do. Jonathan does according to a plan he has made with David. He takes a boy out in the field, shoots arrows, and tells the boy the secret code language. Look at verse 38. Jonathan called after the boy and said, hurry, be quick, do not stay. Not only did the secret plan, not only did the cover-up and the secret plan work out flawlessly, but also Jonathan and David had a chance that they were not sure if they would have to actually take their goodbyes as well. Their parting of ways becomes deeply emotional. Their covenant will now experience a physical separation from one another. There are great tears on both faces, and we're told that David wept more. Perhaps it shows that David was the one more deeply distressed. But notice Jonathan's parting words to David in verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Go in peace, David. If there's any time when David was in clear turmoil, he was now separated from his wife, separated from his covenant friend, Jonathan, Persecuted by his boss and his king, Saul, and yet Jonathan sends him off with this assuring word, go in peace. In turmoil, in the unknown, in the unstable, go in peace. On what grounds go in peace? Look at the rest of verse 42. Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Before these two friends part ways physically, Jonathan reminds David again of what? Of the covenant. Of the covenant that they have made the previous day. The covenant Jonathan has made with David was Jonathan's request to seek his security under the house of David. Jonathan has made his choice. Whose kingdom will he seek? It's not his father's kingdom, nor his own kingdom, but the kingdom where the son of Jesse reigns. Four words summarize the plot of the story. Peril, protection, pressure, and peace. There is peace. Under the covenant with the house of David. All characters in this chapter have sought one way or another some level of security. The first one, David, sought security from Saul's threats. He was in physical peril for his life. The second one, Saul, sought to secure his dynasty by seeking to kill David. And so he pressured Jonathan to bring David to Saul. The third, Jonathan, has a choice to make. Will he find shelter and security in what his father is trying to offer him? Or will he find security and shelter under the house of David? There's an English idiom, to hitch one's wagon to something. It means to attempt to benefit from something or someone else's success or potential by closely associating with it or with them. Who will Jonathan hitch his wagon to? Jonathan came to realize his kingdom, his reign, and his self-rule are not worth establishing. Jonathan realized that God planned to destroy his father's dynasty. And though he was still on the throne and in power, through the eyes of faith, Jonathan came to see that God was working through David, even though at the moment David was despised. Jonathan Hitched his wagon to the one who was God's chosen king, even though he was now despised and rejected. Friend, what are you hitching your wagon to? Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, Help us to see what our physical eyes cannot see. Help us to see that there is a throne and a kingdom that is coming, that has already been ushered among us, and that will have its full consummation at the return of Jesus Christ. And at that time, we know that you will put all his enemies under his feet, Father, cause us by your Spirit to see the reality that our world cannot yet see. Help us, Father, to consider carefully and well to what and who we are hitching our wagons to, to what and who we are siding with and seeking to build up and establish and protect. Father, we pray that through the Spirit's power, You would cause us to seek Christ, to find our hope, to find our security in Him, even though in this age He is despised and rejected. Give us courage. Give us boldness not to turn away from the one rejected and despised. But have power, have the ability to seek Him, to put our hope and trust in Him. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray.